Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. When you don't have a clear curriculum for your classroom, it is so overwhelming to try to put that together yourself. Spending hours on Pinterest and Google, pulling worksheets and pulling pieces of curriculum together to make something that works for your classroom. That's why we created the Autism Helper Curriculum and now offer Curriculum Access. Curriculum Access gets you access to all levels and all subjects of the highly differentiated, evidence-based Autism Helper Curriculum. You can have students working on letter identification and working on parts of speech at the same time in our easy-to-use curriculum. We currently have hundreds of teachers using Curriculum Access from all over the world with consistently rave reviews. I want you to join that group of teachers. Now is the time to ask your administrators for curriculum access. We have an email template ready to go so you can ask them to set up a demo. Your administrators can jump on a live call with our team members to see everything that's included in the Autism Helper curriculum access. Next year, let's reduce the overwhelm. Let's start the year out with a path and a plan and resources to meet all the diverse needs of your students. Let's make next year the year of curriculum access. Head over to the show notes to learn more. Hi, I'm Sasha Long, special ed teacher and board certified behavior analyst. Welcome to the Autism Helper Podcast. I'm here to explore different strategies to improve the lives of individuals with autism. Welcome back to the Autism Helper Podcast. I am so thrilled to share this interview with you. I think you are going to walk away with a lot of new ideas and a really good perspective on ABA, staff training, compassionate care. We cover a lot. So today I'm chatting with Lupe Castaneda, and he is a BCBA with over 20 years experience in both the public school setting and in the clinic practice. He shares so many great ideas on how to implement ABA-based strategies within a public school setting. We talk about staff training. We talk about buy-in. We talk about how to find the time to do all of this. And we also wrap up the interview discussing really what compassionate treatment is and how we can run our programs and our behavior plans in a way that is trauma-informed, in a way that is utilizing a scent-based treatment, and how to deal with objections to that idea as well. So we dive into a lot of topics. I can't wait for you to hear from him. So let's go ahead and get to the interview. Hi, Lupe. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for the invitation. I really have been looking forward to this. Well, I'm excited to talk about something that really I think you are an expert at, at bringing ABA into the school setting. You know, when I was an undergrad, everyone that I was going to school with was working in clinics or in in-home settings, and I was a public school teacher. So I always was thinking about how to implement ABA in a school setting, and I'm excited to chat with you about that today. Absolutely. And that is definitely dear, near and dear to my heart. 
So why is bringing ABA-based strategies into schools beneficial for both, you know, special ed and beyond that to the gen ed classrooms as well? You know what I, I often say, I've been saying this for years, is that the majority of the students with autism and other disabilities are uh, educated in schools, right? We can only serve so much out in the private sector. Uh, there's such a huge demand for our services, uh, but yet in schools, uh, those schools, everyone has access to schools, to public schools at the very least, right? Yeah. So the majority of our guys uh, are educated in that setting. And that's why I think it's important to bring it to uh, to schools, to bring our field, you know, our uh, contributions to the education system. It's exciting to see, especially in the last five years, I've seen more and more BCBAs working within public school settings, which is really exciting. I mean, yes, they typically have ridiculously large caseloads, but we're starting to see more and more BCBAs within those roles. Uh, since a lot of special ed teachers sometimes move into that BCBA role, or maybe you're thinking about it, what are some different roles and responsibilities that you've seen BCBAs have in public school settings? Yeah, I've seen a lot. Okay. So I have been, um, I started working in schools as a BCBA about 22 years ago, um, I think. So my position evolved out of necessity, right? Mm -hmm. Back then, most, uh, there were parents that were just learning about ABA, right? 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago. And uh, they came to the schools asking, hey, you know, or demanding in some cases, there's this uh, low VOS 40 hour uh, ABA training that uh, is supposed to uh, really increase a child's skills and so forth. It's like, all right, great. You know, let's, uh, let's see what we can do there. Uh, there were no programs around. Back then there mm -hmm. weren't BCBAs in schools yet, but that opportunity, thanks to the parent advocates, uh, did lead me to become a full-time BCBA. That was the first of four different school districts I have uh, provided services in as a full-time BCBA and currently consulting with other school districts as well. But um, so there are a lot of challenges, as you probably know, coming <laughs> from the school system. But primarily what we, I think what I often hear about from my colleagues is that uh, caseloads are tremendous, right? Yeah. Now, Sometimes, as part of our responsibilities, uh, maybe we're responsible for conducting FBAs and developing the BIPs, right? So that doesn't seem a lot. But in other cases, the BCBA may also be responsible for conducting skills assessments, right? Being a major part of that IEP team. Uh, and um, so not only do you have FBAs, BIPs, now you're doing skills assessments. You may even be part, as a BCBA, part of the assessment team, right? The autism assessment team, which I think is wonderful. I got an opportunity to work in that, and I think it's a great experience. But so that's just some of the um, responsibilities. So caseloads, multiple responsibilities. Some of us, I think a lot of us, are also crisis management uh, trainers, right? So yeah. we train staff across the district in crisis, crisis management procedures, mostly preventive procedures, of course, but still. So that take consumes a lot of our time. And then we may even get a direct caseload. Some of us in the setting, and I have seen this, and I think I've been a part with one or two cases in the past several years where I am directly implementing uh, uh, IEP goals and objective with a student for some of the time, just due to the circumstances with that particular student in school. So 
lots and lots of um, uh, responsibilities and challenges there. I think it's exciting to see where all of the roles are evolving. And kind of like you said, that's so cool that, you know, your role started from apparent demand that, hey, this is what we want. And they were like, all right, we'll bring that in. And I and I'm hoping that we continue to see, you know, more and more of that years later as parents expectations increase for their students as they should, that they need specialized training in in services. And the teachers can't always provide that because just because they don't have that background. Absolutely. I live in San Antonio, right? We're a military city, so there are a lot of, so that means that TRICARE pays for ABA services, right? And mm-hmm. there are a lot of students, a lot of individuals in this area that receive ABA services. So when parents are advocating for ABA uh, therapy in the schools, right? We're fortunate some of the school districts, I want to say the, the larger school districts in our area, do have at least one BCBA. I was you know, the only BCBA, unfortunately, with the largest school district in this uh, in San Antonio at one point. But uh, parents are coming there, and so what we will say: Hey, we're listening. Let's let's collaborate with your private BCBA. Let's work together to try to develop a program that you guys are utilizing in the home or in a clinic based. Let's see how we can help uh, provide some of that programming here. We're a group setting, right? Not a one-to-one as in a clinic or in a home setting, but we will try some of the uh, uh, procedures, techniques that you guys are using. So I think that is helpful. And also, if you have an in-house BCBA, that in-house BCBA can provide a lot of staff training and classroom consultation. So I think that's an advantage of having your own in-house BCBA. Yeah, that's true. You bring up a great point on that collaboration between those like home services and the school services. And, you know, too often we we see that disconnect. So that's great that you're seeing those those programs work together. What advice do you have for classroom teachers who who maybe know that their students are getting outside services and, and building that connection if those outside clinicians aren't reaching out to them? Reach out, reach out to those people. I just started a um, started consulting with a new school district just today, just this morning, and um, I asked, you know, hey, you know, do any of your guys receive ABA services? And of course, you know, at least one uh, one of the students did. So I, I asked the teacher, do you guys have communication with the BCBA? That was the first thing I asked, and uh, she said, well, yeah, but the BCBA just comes in and kind of tells us what to do, right? <laughs> That's a turnoff. That you're. We as BCBAs coming from the outside, we need to understand that. But however, I did say, okay, well, since I'm going to be consulting here, I'd like to get permission, you know, uh, a release of confidentiality to speak to that BCBA so that we can start to collaborate with the classroom staff, myself, and the outside BCBA. So I would say to a classroom teacher, of course, this is if the BCBA is playing nice, right? You BCBAs out there, including <laughs> myself, uh, but reach out, reach out to the family. Hey, I want to learn. What are you guys doing? You know, what are you guys doing there? What kind of skills are you teaching? Uh, how do you handle some of the behaviors? What have you guys, you know, what, what could we help with, you know, to help generalize these skills, right? So I'd say open up that communication. That is going to be the key right there. If you as the teacher, are the ones to initiate conversation with the outside therapist. You know, I say that that is a must. And of course, we 
as BCBAs, we're obligated, right? Ethically obligated to collaborate with all other stakeholders around that, uh, all other the client stakeholders. Yeah. And I like that you brought that up, that it is a, it's such a turnoff if a BCBA comes in and just like rattles off maybe what the teacher is doing wrong or what they should be doing. And I've unfortunately seen that happen. And it, it just immediately, like you said, turns everyone off and the teachers immediately shut down. And now they're like, any BCBA that talks to me, I don't want to talk to you. And it, and it's such a disservice for our field because maybe that, that was just that one clinician that didn't have great consultation skills. That's right. I even heard that this morning, unfortunately, you know, uh, my wife is a teacher, a longtime teacher, you know, gen ed teacher, but uh, she says, oh, yeah, you know, whenever they have a behavior, you know, challenges in their classroom, uh, uh, she'll say, yeah, we get these drive-by, these drive-by consultations. <laughs> Somebody will stop by for, uh, you know, for an hour or two, make recommendations, and then you don't see them for the rest of the year until ARD time, IEP time, or something like that. But that's yeah. almost what this, uh, you know, that's what this teacher told me today. And I said, hey, I'm here. And, and another thing, too, is that when we get called in, of course, if you're uh, in an in-house and in a district BCBA, I think it's going to be a lot different, right? Mm-hmm. I know, you know, working as a BCBA and you too, and many of us that are, you know, district BCBAs, we already have, well, we don't necessarily have buy-in from the teachers yet, right? But we already are part of the system. So I think that's yeah. definitely helpful. But, uh, but what can happen too is that, um, is that, we as the BCBAs, you know, fail to communicate to to all the stakeholders, you know. So, I think that that can be um, uh, definitely um, something that we should be able to work on as well. Yeah, I agree. That's a big thing. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for one twenty nine each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. You know whether you are in this BCBA role in a clinic or in a school, or really as a teacher too, a lot of your role is staff training. You know, I I talk about staff training all the time because I think that was one of the hardest things for me as a young teacher, because I was wildly unprepared to train my team because you're, you're not taught how to do that. Right. Right. And also as, as, as BCBAs, I mean, we don't get it. There's not like, you know, guidelines on how to be a great leader. That is a skill set we have to really cultivate. So when it comes to staff training within schools, what are some of the biggest challenges you see and, and what are some strategies you have to kind of combat those challenges? I think the biggest challenge is time, right? Yeah. Lack of time to train. So um, that is, you know, typically everything's front loaded, right? All of the, you know, need, new teachers go back usually a week or two before the regular teachers do. And, and the regular teachers, the, you know, the, uh, the former teachers or the existing teachers come in a week before, but they're inundated with meetings. So we as the BCBAs and even, you know, crisis management trainers, we, we're lucky if we get one or two full days of PD that we can provide to the teachers, right? So teachers, they have a lot, especially the special ed teachers, a lot on uh, guidelines, on policies, on changes to the curriculum, on new technology that the district has adopted and so forth. So time is the biggest challenge. And then if we want to train 
paraprofessionals. And I heard your question and answer uh, podcast on paraprofessionals, your recent one. I think you're one of your yeah. last ones. That was wonderful. I have heard every one of those questions. But when <laughs> we try to train um, paraprofessionals, those are typically hourly employees. So yeah. districts are reluctant to uh, provide any additional staff training, any additional professional development training, uh, because then that'll cause overtime, right? Over mm -hmm. their 40 hours. So trying to train the paraprofessionals is another huge challenge with regard to training. And your experience, my experience probably has been paraprofessionals want the training, right? Yeah. They want the training, but we need to find the time to do it and to do it appropriately. You and I just talking and people like us just talking at a group is not necessarily training. I want to be there with them. I want to be able to demonstrate or watch them demonstrate skills too, right? Mm -hmm. But I think the time to provide the training, that's probably the biggest challenge right there. Not the reluctance. A lot of people want the training. It's just like, hey, when, when am I going to do this? I have, you know, a lunch hour. I have a planning hour, a planning 30 minutes or something like that. And, and that's basically it. Teachers yeah. are already giving, given so many responsibilities, you know, outside of the teaching that they just don't have, uh, they don't have the opportunities to, to unless it's on their own time, to attend uh, additional trainings. We can offer it, but um, we typically don't get much of a response if it's late evenings, you know, um, maybe early mornings may work, but uh, time is the biggest challenge. Yeah. And we can't ask people, you know, yeah, I get the, like the evening, the morning and, and then people can't come, you know, people have kids and, and carpools and responsibilities and paraprofessionals that are paid by the hour. They have a lunch break and they want to eat lunch, you know, novel concept during that lunch break, right. you right. know, so, so that time is so tricky. What are, what are some things, ways you've set up, um, trainings when you have these time constraints? Well, typically they're going to be done. We're going to try to identify it. My previous, my last full-time school district, which was just last year, just ended this past summer, um, uh, we did have, we, we were asked as the trainers, you know, um, in the, uh, not just the BCBA, I was the only BCBA, but uh, other trainers in the, uh, in the district, we were asked to identify for the following year, we started planning for opportunities and, and and the district would put out their PD days, you know, for the year, say five, six days that they've allotted for professional development during the school year. So they would say, hey, if you want to provide some training, you go ahead and start, you know, uh, uh, start marking, marking down, you know, designating when you would like to provide your training. So we had that opportunity. I think that has, that was helpful. But of mm -hmm. course, we're talking about months, sometimes a year in advance, right? Yeah. What do we do now? What do we do in the next month when you've got a teacher that's struggling with some of the students in her classroom? How do you do that? Well, if you're a district B BCBA, of course, we can do, uh, you know, uh, classroom consultation. But I'll tell you what, in my first um, uh, job as a BCBA, as a full-time BCBA, I was fortunate to, to be in an area up in North Texas where a lot of my classmates, my graduate study classmates, um, uh, in behavior analysis from UNT, they were already providing services. They were on their last year. I was just starting, but we had developed some relationships and I said, hey, I need, you know, I propose this to the district during a, uh, a summer, you know, uh, extended school year, for instance, right? For those uh, students, I, I asked my colleagues if they would be willing 
to come in and help provide staff training for a week or two with me as the BCBA, the district BCBA. So I proposed this to the district. Yes, it was there was a financial cost to it, but it was tremendous with regards to the learning that took place. We invited teachers and their paraprofessionals to attend a 40-hour training with um, graduate students in behavior analysis, and some of them had already gotten their certification. So we put together a tremendous program. We trained over a, a hundred paraprofessionals and teachers uh, over two summers. And the thing is with extended school years, guess what? We have students. So it was during the summer and we were able to provide intensive instruction, lecture-based instruction, followed immediately by behavior skills training instruction, hands-on implementation. That, I think, is a model that some people are doing. But if school districts can afford that, I would certainly. It would be nice. To, I would recommend that. But I think it would be nice if we can do that during the year as well because in the summer's a long way off. I need some help now, you know? So, yeah. uh, but that was a great opportunity to provide some, uh, some good training to uh, teachers and paraprofessionals. I love the idea of ESY. That's a great idea because yeah, we have kids, we're paid to be there, but we maybe don't have our full, full caseload or we have a smaller group. So we have a little bit of more flexibility than during the school year. That's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. It worked well. I hope to replicate that again soon. It's been a while. Basically, you got to get creative, like ESY in the middle of the day. You know, if someone's willing to give up 10 minutes of their lunch break, it's just all about, you know, that creativity and, and kind of thinking outside the box that we're not going to wait for, hey, we have a PD day in February, but what are we going to yes. let this teacher do until then, basically? That's so true. So once we get the time, the next thing I hear all the time is, is the buy-in. And, and you're right, you were kind of right on being, you know, time is the biggest issue. Typically staff does want the training, right? They're, right. especially if we're talking about extreme behaviors, sometimes staff is just hungry for ideas and strategies because, you know, they're, they're getting hurt. They're, they have, that child is a safety risk, risk to themselves and others. So they want those strategies, but looking at that buy-in piece and that consistency of implementing behavior plans, what has been successful for you when training, you know, teachers and paraprofessionals as well on, on getting the buy-in? It's the same thing that we do with our new clients, right? What is that called? That's pairing, right? We pair, we build those relationships, you know, and relationship building is uh, being talked about so much in our field right now. And uh, that is the biggest way. That's the most, one of the most important ways to, to get some buy-in. And it's not only me telling you, I kind of got some feedback today, just hearing from that teacher and the staff about what other people similar to, you know, to, to me have done and other consultants or, uh, or, or what have you. Um, there's a lot of tell, you know, mm -hmm. uh, so I'm glad they gave me the feedback before. I'm going to go in, I'm going to take my notes as a BCBA, and then I'm going to tell you what to do, right? How do you get the buy-in? You show them. You demonstrate, right? You ask a lot of questions first. You observe the kids for a couple of minutes. I didn't even bring my notebook out because of the feedback that they gave me as soon as I got there. It's like, okay, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna bring my <laughs> notebook or my laptop out. Okay. So I took their cue. I provide I, I took their feedback and I implemented, you know, basically their recommendations based on that feedback. But developing the relationship. I was only there, you know, for a few minutes before kids came in. It's like, you know what? Okay, let me just watch. Let me ask lots of questions. Let me assure them that I am not there to evaluate them, which one of the teachers thought, hey, I'm here to help. Okay, you ask me any questions, I'll help. But really, 
So building the relationships with the teachers, uh, asking lots of questions, listening, don't interrupt, don't put your two cents in as a BCBA expert, right? Listen, just listen, 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 talk not only to the teachers, talk to the paraprofessionals who know these students probably better than teachers in many cases, right? They work directly with them hour after hour, day after day, so they know about that student much more than we do, certainly as an outside party, even a district BCBA. But then you start showing, you start demonstrating, right? You know, uh, gradually, uh, uh, systematically, if possible, and certainly refraining from um, providing any constructive feedback early on. Yeah. That worked today. And you know how I know it worked? Because staff told me, hey, I like the way that you were, you know, uh, doing that training or what have you. And you're nice. (laughs) So (laughs) that was a greatest compliment, you know. So that is what I'm talking about, building the relationships, listening, and then showing. I'm not just going to sit in a corner with my notepad, which I've done in the past, yes, um, and take notes and then write up a plan after talking to the teacher and so forth. Let's show them. I love that's such a great example um, of being flexible too. That you heard them say, like, hey, people just sit with a notebook and you're like, oh, right away, I'm not going to take out my notebook. Like, being able to like change in the moment and that listen and and rapport and pairing piece is so important. I think, you know, teachers and paraprofessionals especially feel so unheard that to be the one of like, hey, I hear you and I, you're the expert on this child. Let, let me listen to you is such a switch in that dynamic that maybe people aren't used to. And that's such a fresh, you know, new way to approach it versus, hey, let me tell you later what my opinion is. Yeah, it is. It is so invaluable. I think uh, uh, we. It's not only with teachers and staff, right? We know that that's the way to interact. You know, of course, with families, you know, who have their own sort of set of circumstances that they're dealing with uh, when the child gets home and into the community. But uh, certainly them, other professionals too, I think, you know, because we don't work, you know, in isolation, right? You know, talk, mm-hmm. going back to collaboration, we work with many others, uh, uh, many other stakeholders that are just as uh, an advocate for that child as you think you are, right? So we've yeah. got to play nice with them too. Yes. Lots of, lots of people in the sandbox. We can't just be the only one. <laughs> right. So kind of switching gears. Um because I think all of this, you know, ties into how we develop our, our treatment plan, how we develop our behavior plan. It has to be collaborative. We have to work with everyone on the team. We have to have the staff training and buy-in piece. But kind of going beyond that and looking at what is actually in our behavior plans, I know that you are really passionate about talking about compassionate treatment. That's like, I guess, being <laughs> redundant there. But I'd love to hear how you define compassionate treatment and how we can ensure that we're doing that both in the home and school setting and even beyond with, with adults with disabilities. Right. I'll talk about the way that I define it first, and then I'll go back to some of the literature that's out there just very briefly. But really the way I define it is kind of the way I talked about uh, getting staff buy-in, right? We want to we build this relationship. I want to be a listener. I want to be able to listen to whether it's a parent or whether it's a paraprofessional or a teacher. What are their concerns first, right? Uh, I'm going to listen, and then I'm going to hopefully um, uh, provide some type of feedback, commenting on 
um, on what they've told me, right? Summarizing briefly what they've told me, not to be judgmental. I want to be non-judgmental when I provide this, uh, because the the you know in many cases the teacher, the staff, the paraprofessionals, the parents are our clients too, right? They are part of the uh, part of the whole equation here, and um, so I need to also be compassionate to their needs as well. And so developing that relationship, listening, and refraining from uh, judgmental state uh, statements, and then listening to what their concerns are and starting to develop a plan on what their ultimate goals are. Yes, their concerns may be primary behavior, right? Behavior reduction. But then we have to delve even further than that. What is it? Okay, so uh, yes, your child is engaging in pretty significant behavior right now, but where would you like to see him or her in five years, in 10 years as an adult, right? So compassionate care for me would be, I've got to empathize with, you know, the folks that I'm working with, including my clients, my direct clients, whether they can talk or not, whether they have, you know, the the repertoires to interact with me the way we're interacting right now or not, I need to be able to look at my the procedures I'm recommending I want to implement and make sure that if that child is indicating in any way any kind of distress, I need to take that as feedback to say, whoa, wait a minute, I think I need to back off, right? So that kind of ties into compassion and assent-based treatment and things like that, right? We're hearing a lot of that in our field, and rightfully so. But um, what we need to understand as behavior analysts is that uh, we remember way back when, at at the start, we are charged with only addressing behavior that is socially significant to that person and to their immediate caregivers, their family, their stakeholders, right? Mm -hmm. So socially significant behavior, we have been, that has been emphasized. That is part of what behavior analysis is, is uh, is, uh, uh, taking that into consideration, right? So that should have been going on for years, right? It's being talked about more, compassionate care, right? Trauma-assumed, trauma-informed care, assent-based treatment. It's been talked about because there have been some advocates, there have been some individuals, autistic individuals who are now advocates, who have experienced, whether in education or in behavior analysis, experienced some aversive or what they perceived was aversive events, right? Mm -hmm. So um, that is definitely something that we need to take into consideration. I heard in a podcast recently, I like this. I said, uh, someone, it was the podcast uh, guest that said something similar to, just because a procedure works doesn't mean that it's okay to implement it, right? And specifically when we talk about extinction, right? You know, Mm -hmm. we all know what extinction is, you know, that some people get confused with that. But extinction, just because that's effective, does that mean that we should use that? Most studies will show, no, not in isolation. And in some certain circumstances, maybe not at all, right? There's a recent article in Behavior Analysis and Practice, I think, called Kind Extinction or something like that, right? So look that up. That's a recent one. Probably came out early this year or last year. 
that would be wonderful too. Uh, but really the way I, I started looking at some more research, because there is a lot of research out and I look for the latest and greatest, but just to summarize a couple of things. So Scallon and Rosales Reese, 2023, this year in behavior analysis and practice have an article. You'll find that, you know, I think it's an open, uh, uh, open access article, constructional approach to behavior change, right? Compassionate uh, constructional approach. And they have three critical features of compassion. And this is based on the research that they did, right? All of the research, the reviews of literature, not only in behavior analysis, but in other fields, other human services fields, medical fields, and so forth. Three critical features, identifying suffering, demonstrating empathy, and acting to alleviate and prevent suffering. How do we interpret that as special educators? How do we interpret that as behavior analysts, right? Mm -hmm. Well, hopefully we're going to interpret that as, you know, some of the things that I said, identify suffering. We've got to empathize. We've got to understand for those of us, behavior analysts, special educators that say, oh, if the, if only the parent would follow through on what we're telling this child's behavior would be so much more improved. I'm sure you've heard that in the past, right? Mm -hmm. We've got to understand what it's like. Yeah. Take a day, take a few hours, visit that family at home in the community when they try to take their kid to a family birthday party. Go out there for a couple of hours and then come back and you tell me, if only they, right? We've got to understand. And demonstrating empathy, of course, that's part of the understanding. What, you know, we, we've got to feel, we've got to try to envision what they're going through, right? So it's the same thing as us, with us as outside BCBAs, even if we're district BCBAs. Sometimes we may think, oh my gosh, if only this teacher and her staff would follow through with the recommendations I'm making, then things would be better. Then you go into that classroom, you've got 10 kids with multiple disabilities, five of whom have significant disabilities and maybe some challenging behaviors and only two staff. And then you go back and you tell me, you know, can you, you know, still repeat that phrase? So, you know, and then of course, what we try to do as part of compassion is acting to alleviate and prevent suffering. The skill building that we teach, right, the skills, the replacement behaviors, that's, that's meant to help strengthen behaviors, strengthen skills to alleviate or prevent further suffering from that individual, that student, that client, or from the family themselves. Another, you know, really interesting, uh, it was, um, who was it, Taylor et al., probably 2019 Behavior Analysis and Practice, they actually have a... Uh, compassionate care uh, core curriculum that they uh, published, I think, in behavior analysis and practice. And it's got about seven areas uh, on how we can demonstrate compassion. And I think this is a wonderful, wonderful for our field and even in special education to, to look at, to start considering. I'll just give you a couple of them here. Uh, providing acknowledgement and making comments, right? Supportive comments. That's either to the families that you're working with or to the special educators and the professionals uh, that you're working with, right? Or provide reassurance that things will get better, right? Yeah. I know it, it sounds inauthentic sometimes, but we should attempt to, to, to say, hey, things can get better. I've used that many times myself, 
without realizing that, hey, that's just part of good, compassionate care. So just, those are just a couple there. Oh my gosh, that was a great, I want to take the last five minutes and just clip that out and have everyone listen to that. That was a great explanation of, of what compassionate care is on so many different levels. Um, so thank you for summarizing that so nicely. I was, I'm curious how you would answer this question. So I was talking about this a few weeks ago with a group of teachers and we were talking about kind of the same idea of ascent-based treatment and if kids are having aversive reactions, what we do and how we are viewing that as communication and pulling back. And someone was like, well, isn't that reinforcing the negative behavior? Um, which was a good conversation to have. How do you respond to staff that's kind of coming back with that mindset that like, oh, you know, I, I have to use escape extinction, whether they realize they're using that or not. Cause you know, many special ed teachers don't even realize that's quite what they're doing. What, what do you respond to that on, on trying to kind of evoke that mindset shift there? Yeah, I, I've heard that from BCBAs, paraprofessionals, special education teachers, RBTs recently. Okay. We talked about it this morning in that new classroom. Okay. No one can um, implement extinction with a hundred percent fidelity, right? So yeah. if we say we're going to use this and I want all the teachers in the classroom or in the school that serve this child to use, you know, a particular procedure is extinction, for instance, you know, um, there is, it's, it's almost impossible to implement it with hundred percent fidelity. So um, with regards to that behavior being reinforced, it's persisting because it is being reinforced. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and um uh, it's going to be very, very difficult to um, continue to implement that, especially if the child starts engaging in more serious behavior like self-injury, right? You know, we know that we get those extinction bursts a lot of the time, if not most of the time, when we uh, implement an ex- extinction alone, you know? So there's got to be some other ways. I say, you know what, and what we've recommended to, and one of the crisis management, the crisis management uh, system that we teach says, and I've said this in the past, it's okay to reinforce the behavior if it is an extreme safety issue that we're dealing with here. I've had families out in the community, single mothers that have had, you know, one or two children were out on outings and I'm their behavior support BCBA and just getting the kids out and the family out and so forth. Uh, Sometimes those parents will out of need have to take their kid with them to the community, to go buy groceries, to go buy whatever it is, some necessities. And what I have told parents based on past histories with them without support is that if it is an extremely dangerous behavior, reinforce that behavior to get it to stop then and, you know, at at that moment so that the danger stops. Mm -hmm. We can go back and discuss how we plan, we can better plan for those future outings or emergencies that you may have, right? Don't sweat the reinforcement. Yes, it's possible to uh, to reinforce inadvertently some of those behaviors. But there is some research that shows that you can make some change without extinction, right? You, the, be, the behavior can rein, uh, be reinforced. Uh, the inappropriate behavior can be reinforced, but yet the appropriate behaviors or the you know skill acquisition, the skills can still be acquired, you know, with some reinforcement. I say, let's not focus so much on the what if, right? What if it gets reinforced? Let's focus on what we're doing right now. 
how is that child demonstrating that they are willing, a willing participant in our uh, learning, right, in our teaching? That's what I want. If I get a little mm-hmm. bit of fussing, huffing, puffing, resistance, that's okay. Yeah, and some of that's going to get reinforced inadvertently, but it's okay because mm-hmm. ultimately long-term is what we're looking at. We need to look long-term with these guys well into beyond school. What's going to help that student, that child, after they leave school in a few years? Yeah, that's a great answer. It's it's a good it's a good it's a good question that I'm happy when people bring it up because you know sometimes they're thinking it and then it gives the opportunity for a good discussion here on really what are our, our long term goals and things like that. Yeah, I think it's us sometimes, uh, Sasha, um, us behavior analysts that we can be so we can be so rigid. Here we are mm-hmm. trying to teach flexibility <laughs> in our students, right? But yet we're we're rigid I with know. our procedures and protocols. We're the most rigid ones, <laughs> right? Take a look at you know for those of you who aren't familiar, look at Progressive ABA by Justin Leaf and his colleagues at Autism Partnership Foundation. Look at Greg Hanley and what they're doing with their group. Look at look for that paper today's ABA, right? They're talking about a different approach to the way that we provide it, whether it's out in clinics and homes or in the school setting as teachers and staff. Read those. And then we then we can say, hey, you know what? Maybe I don't have to use this same SD for the next 500 trials, right? Maybe I can teach a little loosely and I'll still get skill acquisition. We've got to think that way. Let's not be rigid with our procedures. And that's what some of these, uh, some of this latest research is, is, um, is uh, demonstrating for us. You know, we can teach a little loosely and still get results. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I could like chat with you forever. This was, we covered a lot of ground. Thank you so much. Um, So where can people go to learn more from you? I know you have an Instagram account and um, can you share your practice in San Antonio? Sure. My practice is uh, Behavior Pathways. Uh, Our website is learnwithaba.com. And then my email, I'm on um, LinkedIn. I I do mostly LinkedIn. Uh, I try to network with as many people. I do, for those of you who are practice owners, I do have, um, uh, I manage and moderate the, the LinkedIn group, ABA Practice Clinic Owners, I think, something like that. We've got about 4,000, 4,500 members in that right now. And really, I just created that so that we can provide resources for you guys that are out there. You know, so Learn With ABA. My email is lupe at learnwithaba. And then, of course, I'm on LinkedIn. And I've got uh, a small presence in um, Facebook under my name, Lupe Castaneda. Great. I will link all of those in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining me. This was such a great conversation. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity and keep doing what you're doing. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Autism Helper podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, hit subscribe. It would mean a lot to me if you left some feedback. Whether I'm working one-on-one with a student, doing a podcast like this one, or presenting for a PD, my goal is always to provide as much value as I can. So your feedback really helps me make sure I'm doing just that. If you have other topics you'd like me to cover, leave in the feedback or message me on social media. You can follow me at The Autism Helper on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest, or visit my website, theautismhelper.com. Thanks again for listening.
Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Having the right resources for your classroom is essential to making sure your classroom is running smoothly. At the Autism Helper Shop, we have all of the resources you need to make sure you have the behavior, communication, and curriculum supports for your students. Within our shop, we have adapted books, task cards, resources aligned to the VB map and the ABLES, behavior plan flowcharts, data sheets, curriculum, everything you need, whether you are an early childhood teacher or a high school teacher, we have all of the resources that will meet those students' needs. So head over to shop.theautismhelper.com to check out all of our resources.